Um, well, if you were here last week, you know that we're doing a series here at Tabernacle on the seven woes that Jesus speaks to the religious leaders in Matthew 23. And last week, Phil Beatty spoke on the first two woes, and he talked about how each of those woes demonstrates God's desire to welcome all who will come into the kingdom of God. While the religious leaders wanted to block certain people from entering the kingdom, Jesus instead was radically inclusive in his invitation for people to join God's kingdom. And I thought he did a really great job of unpacking those verses for us. Tonight, we're going to be looking at the next two woes. And you might be wondering, well, what is this woe stuff? You know, woe to you. No one talks like that. What does Jesus mean? Well, saying woe to you is kind of like saying, oh, how terrible for you. Or uh, like, wow, your future does not look good. And I bring this up because I think it's easy for us to read Matthew 23 and to think, well, Jesus doesn't have any empathy or concern for the religious leaders at all. This is just this angry tirade where Jesus is basically saying, like, may horrible things happen to you guys. Um, But I want us to realize that in all likelihood, woe to you is probably more of a compassionate expression of grief and frustration than a mean-spirited condemnation. Um, That's not to say that Jesus isn't upset. You know, he's very upset. He definitely is. I just want us to realize that there's room to see compassion in Jesus' attitude here, too. Woe to you. How terrible for you. You know, your future is bleak. So let's look at these two woes one at a time. We're going to start with a third woe. This is in verse 16, and it should be up there. Awesome. Matthew 23, verse 16. Woe to you, blind guides. You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? You also say, if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift on it, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred. Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And he who swears by the temple swears by it and by the one who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. I think this passage can be a little confusing for us today because we don't talk about oaths very often. You know, we don't offer sacrifices at a temple, at least not literally, Uh, We don't swear by gifts on an altar. But we do say and do some things that are kind of like this, right? Um, I'm sure some of us have heard someone say, I swear to God. Usually we say, oh, don't do that. That's a bad idea. (laughs) But I swear to God or I swear on my grandmother's grave. Um, And we understand that what people mean when they say things like that is, I really am telling the truth. Or I'm really serious about this promise. And the way they're doing that is by invoking something that's sacred to them. And the same thing happens in courtrooms, you know, when witnesses are asked to put put their hand on a Bible and say, I swear to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help me God. The idea is that by making this promise in the presence of something sacred, the person will be less likely to break that promise, and everyone around them will have greater confidence that they're actually telling the truth. So we do do something not too different. This is a practice that we see still lingering in our culture. 
But Jesus isn't saying, woe to you, because the Pharisees are swearing oaths on the temple or on the gold in the temple or, or anything like that. Jesus is saying, woe to you, because the Pharisees had come up with these escape clauses for their promises. Uh, what they were doing was a lot like when kids, uh, what kids do when they tell a lie, but they cross their fingers. Uh, at least when I was growing up, in the complicated world of childhood ethics, I remember that if one's index finger was crossed over one's middle finger at the same time as one was making a promise or stating a proposition, the crossed fingers grant the speaker immunity from all penalization for breaking that promise or knowingly speaking a false proposition, right? When the fingers are crossed, all bets are off. It's like calling shotgun. You call shotgun first, you get to sit in the front seat. I don't know why that is, but that's the way it is. You don't argue with it. But as we get older, that doesn't work anymore. You realize that you can't justify a lie just by crossing your fingers. That sort of defense might work on the playground, but it doesn't work in the office. Uh, hey, Jim, you said you'd have that expense report ready today. Oh, Bill, you're going to hate me for this, but I had my fingers crossed. Gotcha. Sorry. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't work. And the reason is because as we get older, we recognize that we have a moral obligation to tell the truth. And that obligation can't be eliminated just by doing something like crossing your fingers. But what the Pharisees were really saying wasn't that much different than fingers crossed. The only difference was that their justification for breaking the promises was wrapped up in this fancy religious package. So they said that they... they claimed certain things in the temple had greater value, therefore promises only counted if you swore on those things. It sounded pious. But what the Pharisees were really doing was that they were, and, and listen closely to this, they were using religion as a way to justify not telling the truth. They were using religion as a way to justify not telling the truth. They didn't want to be obligated to keep their word, so they created these religious rules that made the film justified in breaking their word. Oh, you broke your promise? Well, that's no big deal. You swore by the temple, not by the gold in the temple. Fingers crossed. And Jesus clearly doesn't like this. In fact, Jesus doesn't just dislike this idea of certain oaths counting and not counting. Uh, Jesus actually dislikes the idea of oaths entirely. Earlier in Matthew's Gospel, he says during the Sermon on the Mount, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. Simply let your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. So Jesus is saying that, you know, we shouldn't need to take oaths to guarantee our truthfulness. And we certainly shouldn't need to take oaths on specific things in order to guarantee our truthfulness. We should just be truthful. When we say yes, we should mean yes. When we say no, we should mean no. We should keep our word, and like, if we fail to keep our word, we shouldn't come up with excuses. We should just own up to it. Make amends. But what you can't, what you can't do is say, it's no big deal, I had my fingers crossed. So at least surface level, right, what Jesus is saying here is that he's reminding us of the importance of being honest. And he's reminding us of the importance of religious leaders being honest. But in addition to that, 
I think that what he's saying here reveals Jesus' frustration with religious rules that block us from real relationship with God. As I read this passage a couple times, I was reminded of this incident we had at UConn. I worked at UConn for um, six years with a campus ministry. And I remember we had a few students who were trying to convince other students that unless they had been baptized in the name of Jesus, then their baptism didn't count. And so if when you had been baptized, the baptizer had said, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, instead of just in the name of Jesus, then your baptism was null and void. And you hadn't really been baptized. And these students tried to argue this from Scripture, which is strange to me because Jesus said in the Great Commission, go make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So um, I can't imagine that being baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit could possibly be a bad thing. Uh, But that was what they argued. And uh, they did succeed in convincing this one girl who had been involved with our ministry, that she needed to be rebaptized, And I thought that was so sad because what those students really did was they convinced this girl that God is like the Pharisees in this passage. If God is someone who will ignore your baptism because it is done in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit instead of in the name of Jesus, then God is like someone who says, oh, your promise doesn't count because you swore on the temple, not on the gold in the temple. You see the similarity? What those students had done was they had convinced this girl that God wasn't looking at her heart when she was baptized. God was looking at the terms of a contract. And it was a contract that had loopholes and hidden clauses. And she had failed to meet one of the criteria in that that contract. So God just tore it up. You see what a sad picture of God that is? That's a picture of God that Jesus wants us to reject. God isn't going to disqualify your baptism because someone said, in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. Just like God doesn't care whether you swore on the temple or on the golden temple, God is concerned about whether or not you love him. He's concerned about the state of your heart. He's concerned about, you know, whether or not you're being truthful, about whether or not you're loving others by keeping your word. That's what he cares about. God's about relationship. He's not about contracts. So let's move on to the next woe, which is related, uh, but does offer us some new stuff as well. This is starting in verse 23. Jesus says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. Now, if you're like me, the thing that really jumps out to you from that passage is that line, you strain out a gnat, but you swallow a camel. What is that about? Well, according to the Mosaic Law, there were certain foods that you weren't supposed to eat because those animals were considered unclean. And the book of Leviticus says, all flying insects that walk on all fours are to be detestable to you. And gnats apparently fall under that category. So gnats were really tiny things that you weren't supposed to eat, but on the large end of the spectrum, camels were also off limits. They were also considered unclean. 
So gnats, really small, unclean thing. Camels, really big, unclean thing. And what people in those days, those days would sometimes do uh, is they would strain their wine or their water through linen just in case any gnats had fallen in. And that way they would avoid drinking anything that was unclean. Um, so when Jesus says you strain out a gnat but swallow a camel, he's using a funny image to describe how ridiculous their behavior is. The Pharisees go to great lengths to keep themselves from being defiled by something small, but meanwhile they're ignoring these much bigger, much weightier issues. So in this case, the gnat that the Pharisees are straining has to do with tithing. This is the example Jesus gives. Tithing was something that the Mosaic Law required. Everyone was supposed to offer a tenth of their livestock and their crops, and then that tithe went to support the priests and the needy people in the community. Now, it actually wasn't clear in the Mosaic Law if you needed to tithe spices like mint and dill, because uh, it wasn't really clear if those things counted as food. So no one was sure if you really needed to do that, uh, but the Pharisees erred on the side of caution and tied the spices anyway, because they're like, well, we'll do it just in case, you know, err on the side of caution. And that wasn't what bothered Jesus, but what did bother Jesus is that the Pharisees did, didn't practice justice, mercy, faithfulness. So when it came to following little rules, the Pharisees were great. But when it came to really loving their neighbors, they failed. And it was the juxtaposition of those two things, attention to gnats, neglection of camels, that just really bothered Jesus, that I would go so far as to say it really annoyed him. You know, because there's a real absurdity to caring about the minor aspects of the law, but not the major ones. It's kind of like sending someone this really nasty, demeaning letter, but being really concerned about whether or not it's written on recycled paper. And the Pharisees had gotten like that. Because for the Pharisees, see, the rules had become all about the rules themselves. You know, they, they weren't about the values behind the rules. Rules aren't supposed to exist just for the sake of having rules. Good rules are put in place in order to serve values. So for example, a rule is the speed limit on 384, it's 65. The value which that rule serves is the safety of the drivers. That's what it's there for. Ultimately, the value is the preservation of human life. The value is not going slow. That's the rule, but it, that's not the value. The value is human life. Now, with something like the tithe, there were good values which that rule served. Remember, Jesus says that the big matters of the law are justice, mercy, and faithfulness. And the tithe can actually serve all of those values. By tithing, the Israelites cared for the poor. Uh, by tithing, they met the needs of the priests. That's justice. That's mercy. And by obeying God and trusting in faith that he would meet their needs, when they tithed, they were practicing faithfulness. So the tithe was a rule that could be good could serve greater values. But the problem was that the Pharisees had stopped thinking about the values behind the rules. They only focused on the rules themselves. I think a great example that demonstrates uh, this is the conflict that the Pharisees had with Jesus about the Sabbath. The rule was that every seventh day, everybody was supposed to take a day and rest. That's the Sabbath. And this idea goes all the way back to the creation story in Genesis where it says God rested on the seventh day. So what's the value behind that rule? I think the value is simple. People need a break. 
Ultimately, the value behind the rule of the Sabbath is health, well-being, and joy of people. Good values. We can't just work day after day without recharging. But instead of recognizing the value behind the rule, the Pharisees had gotten caught up in the rule itself. So instead of just letting the Sabbath be an opportunity for people to rest and recharge, they came up with all these laws about what counted as work, and there were so many of these laws that the the Sabbath had become a burden instead of a blessing. And in Mark's gospel, there's this scene where Jesus and his disciples are walking through a field on the Sabbath, and they're hungry, so they pick some grain and they eat it, which any other day of the week would be fine. It would have been a completely legal thing to do. But since the Pharisees have decided that picking grain counts as work, then today on the Sabbath it's forbidden. And so the Pharisees accuse Jesus and the disciples of breaking the Sabbath. And Jesus has a really brilliant response. I love what he says. He says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So in other words, the point of the Sabbath isn't the Sabbath itself. The point isn't the rule. The point of the Sabbath is to bless people. It's to give people rest. But the Pharisees had lost sight of the value behind the rule. Instead, they had made the rule all about the rule, and that led them to create more rules. And because of that, the real value that the rule was supposed to serve was actually undermined. You know, when a person can't even grab a handful of grain while taking a walk on a Saturday afternoon because they're hungry, that rule does not serve the value of giving people rest. But the Pharisees didn't realize the irony in this because for them, the rule had become disconnected from the value. And when rules get disconnected from values, you end up straining out gnats, and you end up swallowing camels, and you forget to treat your neighbor with love and respect and dignity. I do want to make one thing clear, though, that might get lost, and that's that there really is nothing wrong with Sabbath-keeping or tithing or or lots of other things that people do that would be considered religious. You know, those are good things. In fact, notice what Jesus says. It's not up there anymore, but he said, uh, you give a tenth of your spices, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. But then he says, you should have practiced the the latter without neglecting the former. Right? He doesn't say, you should have practiced justice, mercy, and faithfulness, but not tithing. He says you should be doing both. You should be practicing the latter without neglecting the former. Spiritual practices are important. Jesus isn't saying you shouldn't have any rules, shouldn't have any discipline in, in your life. Our values do need to have concrete, tangible expressions. Otherwise, we don't really have any values. They're just empty words. And the book of James says faith without works is dead. So the problem isn't tithing. The problem isn't keeping the Sabbath or honoring God with what we eat or what we watch or anything like that. The problem is just when our spiritual practices become rules that have no connection to God's values. Rules just for the sake of rules. So here's the question I think we need to ask ourselves. Okay, ready for this? This is is the heart of things right here. Uh, This is where I want to try it to tie everything together. Why did the Pharisees make these mistakes? Why did the Pharisees end up practicing rules just for the sake of rules? Why did their rules become disconnected from God's values? 
Why did they strain out gnats but swallow camels? Why did they come up with these rules about oaths? Why were they all about the rules? And I think this is a really important question because it's not just about the Pharisees. It's about us too. We are susceptible to all those same mistakes. So why? What leads us down that road? Well, I don't know if the answer is entirely clear just from these scripture passages alone. But I really think that the reason is because a lot of the time we're more comfortable living in a contract with God than in a real relationship with God. I'll just say that again. We're more comfortable living in a contract with God than in a real relationship with God. In both of the woes we looked at tonight, we can see that the Pharisees viewed their relationship with with God in this very contractual way. Uh, God was over here, they were over here, and between them was this complicated contract. And it has all its hidden clauses and loopholes. And they were like professional lawyers that examined this contract and made additional rules in light of it. And so they interacted with God like two parties in a business arrangement. And that's why they focused on the rules instead of the values behind the rules. Because contracts don't talk about values. They talk about rules, conditions, terms of agreement. So back to the question, why would anyone want to do that? Why would anyone want to choose to do business with God instead of having a friendship with God? Why would someone choose a contract relationship instead of a real relationship? And I really think the answer is because we we don't want to give God our whole selves. We don't want to give him our whole hearts. It's easier just to have a list of rules, do those rules, and then not worry about God or your neighbor beyond that. But Jesus says, woe to you to anyone who wants to operate that way. Because salvation doesn't come through following a list of rules and a contract with God. Salvation comes from knowing him. When God uses metaphors in scripture to describe his relationship with us, he doesn't usually talk about business people and their clients. There are a couple examples in Jesus' parables where there's, there's some things a little bit like that, but most of the time, Jesus talks about fathers and sons and husbands and wives, stuff like that. And husbands can't say things to their wives like, well, my promise doesn't count because I didn't swear on my grandmother's grave. You know, business people and their clients might be able to do that sort of thing, but not husbands and wives, not fathers and sons, at least not ones that have a healthy relationship. Because real relationships, the ones that are truly meaningful, aren't contractual. The Pharisees, I think, are they're kind of like a man who's about to get married, and he approaches his fiancée, and he says, so what do I have to do in order to maintain our marriage contract? You know, how about, how about this, okay? I'll keep the house neat, I'll mow the lawn, I'll provide money to feed and clothe us. Sound good? And the answer, of course, should be no. That's, that's not good enough. Because there's no promise there to really love his bride. Now, if she said that was all he needed to do, then the husband could go off and have affairs with other women and be completely emotionally disconnected from his wife, and he wouldn't be violating the contract. Not a good marriage. But the reason these contractual relationships are so appealing is because they give us the feeling of control. 
If we don't give away our hearts, then we feel safer. We feel like we can still be our own gods. We can still be in charge of our lives. But God wants all of us. Not just our tithe, not just our Sabbath keeping. He wants us to follow rules, but he wants us to follow rules not for the sake of rules, but for the sake of good values. And the highest value of all is to know and love him and to love our neighbor as ourselves. We're going to sing a song now that we've sung many times before. Probably most of you here have heard it, you know, dozens and dozens of times. But I hope that tonight it feels new again. The song is... uh, called From the Inside Out. And there's a line in the pre-chorus that says, let justice and praise become my embrace to love you from the inside out. And I think that singing that line is a really great way to respond to the scriptures we've looked at tonight. Because the Pharisees weren't loving God from the inside out. Right? They were only loving God on the outside, the rules that had become completely disconnected from the values that God really cares about. And they wanted to relate to God like business partners instead of family members. But we need to learn to love God with our whole hearts, on the inside. And then have what is going on in the inside come out on the outside and be a a manifestation of that. So we want our rules to be rooted in God's values. And that means embracing justice and mercy and faithfulness. Let justice and praise become my embrace to love you from the inside out. So let's stand together and declare that. Let justice and praise become my embrace to love you from the inside out. My heart, my heart and my soul I give you control Consume me from the inside out Lord Let justice and praise Become my embrace To love you from the inside out thousand times I fail still your mercy remains should I stumble again I'm caught in your grace everlasting your light will shine when all else fades never ending your glory goes beyond Side out, 
Justice and 